It's two minutes to midnight, as close as we have ever been to human-driven destruction of the planet. This is according to the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, whose president, Dr. Rachel Bronson, writes in the organization's 2018 doomsday statement the following. Major nuclear actors are on the cusp of a new arms race, one that will be very expensive and will increase the likelihood of accidents and misperceptions. Across the globe, nuclear weapons are poised to become more rather than less usable because of nations' investment in their nuclear arsenals. Momentum towards this new reality is increasing." End quote. Is the world closer to a nuclear crisis? Have citizens of the world grown complacent to the threat of nuclear war? And have global institutions neglected their duty to safeguard humanity from this threat? Welcome to another episode of the EWI podcast. My name is Cameron Munter, and today we're joined by Zia Mian, a physicist, nuclear expert, and the co-director of Princeton University's program on science and global security. Zia, welcome to the EWI podcast. Thank you very much. Zia has worked at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs for over 20 years. He's the co-editor of Science and Global Security, the International Technical Journal of Arms Control, Nonproliferation, and Disarmament. And in addition, he co-chairs the International Panel on Fissile Materials, an expert group spanning 18 countries working to end production and eliminate stockpiles of plutonium and weapons-grade uranium. His publication, Unmaking the Bomb, advocates for the reduction and eventual elimination of the fissile material used to produce nuclear weapons. So Zia, let's begin with a quote from Dr. Bronson. Is the world in greater danger of destruction from nuclear weapons than ever before? And what's driving this? What are the recent elements that she's referring to when she talks about being two minutes to midnight? The idea that there is significantly greater risk of crisis leading to conflict, leading to war in which there is the use of nuclear weapons is significantly higher now than it has been perhaps since the end of the Cold War uh, 20 years ago. We're not at a stage where we could say with confidence that this is the greatest risk of nuclear war that we've seen since the first development and use of nuclear weapons during World War II. I think there were times during the first few decades of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union where policymakers and the publics around the world were still starting to learn about the dangers of nuclear weapons and um, the consequences of states having them during crises and war, where when people were learning about them, we did have very, very severe crises where the threat of war uh, between nuclear armed states and the use of nuclear weapons deliberately and by accident was perhaps significantly higher than people understood at the time, but certainly uh, higher than what we would say reasonably is the case today. Um, the most obvious example, of course, for many people would be during the Cuban Missile Crisis, where the United States and the Soviet Union were actually at the stage of a military confrontation because of the blockade, where 
it was now we understand only good fortune that saved us from uh, the possible direct military engagement between U.S. and Soviet vessels leading to the possible use of nuclear weapons. And so I don't think we're quite at that stage of risk and danger, but it's certainly much more than anybody imagined. Now, is that because we have a new mentality that is we were aware either through historical memory of the Second World War or because of the ideological conflict between, say, the Soviet Union and the United States, that we had a context within which we understood nuclear weapons. Is the post-Cold War era, or as you say, since 1989, 90, is part of our problem that we've forgotten or that we've unlearned or that we've thought differently about nuclear weapons? Is that part of the issue, that we don't know how to think about nuclear weapons anymore? I think what's happened is not so much a forgetting, but that the balance of power and perspective has changed over time. So what you have to remember is that arms control wasn't always there during the Cold War. It only emerged in the 1960s when people in the United States, the Soviet Union and elsewhere realized that the superpower nuclear arms race and competition for power and dominance in the world was generating, it was a crisis generating machine, the Cold War. And that as these conflicts had nuclear weapons on both sides and the costs kept going up and the risks of accidents kept going up and there was resistance from all quarters, that the leaders of these countries had to put in place processes and practices of responsibility and restraint. And it was economically prudent. You didn't want a runaway nuclear arms race that you know would bankrupt countries and their economies. And so for a variety of very prudent reasons, you know, the leaders of the United States, Soviet Union and you know Britain and France and so on agreed that you know you needed to have restraint and responsibility and deal with nuclear weapons very seriously with the goal of eliminating them. And that was codified in the nineteen sixty eight Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty that we commit in good faith to negotiate the end of nuclear weapons. So the promise was there from nineteen sixty eight onwards. And it just took a long time to get to, you know, Reagan and Gorbachev saying, okay, we now realize we need to hurry up and do this. But with the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union in particular, in the United States, there was a process where if there's no Soviet Union, do we really need to be restrained? Could our nuclear weapons and our military capabilities not actually strengthen America's position in the world? And so it's worth remembering that it was actually in 2001 a decade after the end of the Cold War, that the Bush administration withdrew the United States from a very, very important superpower arms control treaty, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, that had been signed with the Soviet Union in 1972. And the reason for doing that was that the United States wanted to expand its missile defenses against, you know, potential other powers, and because they thought there's no Soviet Union anymore, so what does it matter if the Soviets don't like, the Russians don't like the fact that we're withdrawing, they can't do anything about it. Then not even a shadow, Russia is not even a shadow of what the Soviet threat was in the Cold War. And the Bush administration also in uh, 2001 put in place uh, a plan to develop new low-yield nuclear weapons very similar to the ones that the Trump administration is now pursuing. And President Bush 
explained all this that said, look, the Cold War is over now. We live in a different time, in a different world. And so the basis for U.S. nuclear policy can be different because we don't have to be restrained in the same way where we faced a superpower competitor. And so since then, what we've seen is an increasingly powerful set of voices in the U.S. saying, no, we need to keep nuclear weapons. We need new and different kinds of nuclear weapons. We need to modernize all of our existing nuclear weapons and prepare for a 21st century where we have nuclear weapons rather than the Obama vision of giving them up. And let me just complete the story that in Russia, the collapse and decline at the end of the Cold War led people like Vladimir Putin and his supporters to say that if we strengthened our nuclear weapons, then perhaps Russia could have some power in the world again that we don't have in the same way we had as the Soviet Union. So for different reasons, there's been a shift in perspective rather than a forgetting. Yes, it sounds to me, though, that what you have mentioned are a number of of elements that kind of coalesced in recent years in what people refer to as a rise of nationalism, or at least a rise of uh, focusing on the power of a state. And I believe you yourself have called for you know, nuclear weapons. Uh, you've said nuclear weapons are too important to be left to the whims of leaders. We need to have a much more organized international process to deal with the threat of nuclear weapons that nuclear weapons pose to humanity. This would call for a multilateral regime that given the tendencies that you raised and the tendencies of the election of Donald Trump or the emergence of Vladimir Putin, that there's a tension here between the desire to use a nationalist approach to the need that you've pointed out and other experts have pointed out for a robust multilateral regime. How do we get to multilateralism on an issue that's this important? I think uh, that's a great question, and I think part of it is um, the failure of um, existing processes to restrain and roll back the dangers of uh, existing nuclear weapons programs and arsenals in the world. What we've seen is that the promise of national restraint of uh, bilateral agreements between the United States, the Soviet Union, and then the United States and Russia, and even what limited multilateral nuclear agreements that we had or tried to put in place, that that system has been failing to deliver what we had hoped for. And so, as I mentioned, the United States withdrew from the anti-ballistic missile treaty. The Soviet Russia has been accused um, of violating the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty by building missiles of particular ranges that had been agreed that they wouldn't build during the latter period of the Cold War. And now President Trump withdrew the United States from the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, saying the Russians are cheating. And now Russia said, well, you with withdraw, we will withdraw. So again, a bilateral process cannot hold in place these kinds of pressures. Multilaterally, what we've seen is that the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty that was agreed to by the United States, Russia, Britain, France, China, and most of the rest of the world, President Clinton signed this in 1996, but the Senate has not ratified and it has still not entered into force, and it's 22 years later. So even a successful multilateral process that can create a treaty and even get leading states to sign it isn't able to enter into force. And there are a whole variety of treaties that we've been trying to negotiate for more than 20 years to deal with some of these Cold War legacy issues and current nuclear arsenals 
like the one to end the production of plutonium and highly enriched uranium for weapons purposes, which is part of the focus of the work that I do and the work at Princeton. We've tried to start these talks at the United Nations for 25 years, but they've been blocked by Pakistan especially, but other countries also. And so, you know, there's been a frustration at, you know, even the beginnings of multilateral processes there. And so I think part of uh, what we're seeing is that as the old system of trying to manage nuclear dangers is failing to be fit for purpose, then we have to search actively for new structures. And one thing that we're seeing is an effort. You know, the Secretary General of the United Nations put out a big disarmament agenda. There are 122 countries that the United Nations agreed in 2017, a new treaty for the prohibition of nuclear weapons, which is a, a pioneering and path-breaking effort by countries without nuclear weapons to say that we see this new treaty as part of the process of filling the gap that exists in the international architecture of multilateral restraint and managing international peace and security by saying explicitly that the threat and use and possession of nuclear weapons should be prohibited. And so a new language is being developed by this large number of states. There is efforts from the United Nations. There is pressure from below where civil society organizations like the International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2017, are going around city to city, including in the United States and other countries with nuclear weapons, to say people should speak up and say that we don't want to be defended by the threat of use of a weapon of mass destruction like a nuclear weapon by our country. And so Washington, D.C. City Council passed a resolution. The state of New Jersey, the state assembly just agreed a resolution saying that the United States should support the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. The state of California has passed a resolution calling for the United States to support the treaty for the abolition of nuclear weapons. You know, so has Paris and Bonn and, you know, many other places. And so there's pressure from below, pressure from countries around the world. And so I think this new multilateralism is something that is emerging at the same time as the old top-down superpower bilateral summit process is collapsing and failing to deliver. So we're in this moment of transition, and so the outcome is not certain, of course. Now, in this moment of transition, you have these new forces, what you could call a new diplomacy, a citizen's diplomacy, subnational groups. But at the same time, you have new players who were not around in the Cold War, people like North Korea, people like Israel, Pakistan, India. How do you get the governments of those countries and indeed the people of those countries to engage in the way that you're getting the D.C. City Council or the state of New Jersey or California? How does one pull all this together, the nations and the multilateral? That, that, again, that's a, that's a terrific question. And I think that what we're seeing at least now is that in the countries with nuclear weapons where there is space for democratic debate and a democratic process and the right of public participation and an entitlement, um, as in all democratic societies, that the people should be governed and ruled on terms that they are willing to accept and seek to have. That that's obviously the place to begin where, you know, people can tell their governments that this is how we want our country to be and how we want to live in the world. And so it's no surprise that, you know, these kinds of processes are 
at play in you know the United States and Britain and France and you know other democratic countries in in Europe and so on, where there is that freedom and that expectation and that entitlement, and I think that what we're uh, expecting to see is that that process will have to meet a more familiar diplomatic collective process where once we have enough democratic countries saying, look, you know, as far as we're concerned, the nuclear age is over and we are going to now make it a priority to end it, that that becomes a central element in their diplomacy and practice with the handful of countries that don't have these kinds of democratic processes where, you know, people can actually speak and have their voices heard. And so I think that it's only when the United States, Britain, France, you know, Europe and others say, yes, we're going to get rid of nuclear weapons and that's going to be something that is going to be the center point of our diplomacy with China, North Korea, India, Pakistan, Israel, etc., that we can begin to have that conversation with them. Right now we're having a conversation with them that says, we're going to keep our nuclear weapons, but you shouldn't have them. And I think that what we can see is that that's not a debate and a way of dealing with things that has actually managed to deliver the kind of progress that we have sought when it comes to nuclear weapons. It is easy to forget that the Soviet Union was not a democratic country, right? And yet, by the time we got to the Reykjavik summit, Gorbachev and Reagan, for their own reasons, were able to agree on the elimination of nuclear weapons. It didn't need a huge civil society driven campaign, which is what happened in the United States with the nuclear freeze movement that eventually led President Reagan to shift his perspective on nuclear weapons away from we should fight a nuclear war with the Soviet Union to yeah, we should abolish nuclear weapons, which is what he said at Reykjavik. And so it is possible for countries that are not democratic to reach the same conclusion as democracies when it comes to nuclear weapons. We have a clear historical evidence for that fact, and they're willing to do this. And in fact, the the first actual plan for the elimination of nuclear weapons was submitted by the Soviet Union. I mean, Gorbachev submitted a plan to abolish nuclear weapons by the year 2000 to Reagan, and Reagan said no. That's too quick for us. And we're not going to give up our Star Wars missile defense system. And that's why that process came unstuck. And so I think that the fact that some countries with nuclear weapons aren't democracies is not as big an obstacle as it may appear at first sight, provided democratic countries are willing to make their own commitments to a world free of nuclear weapons and make that the center of their politics and practice. Let's take a closer look at a potential flashpoint that many recognize uh, as uh, difficult, that of India and Pakistan. In August of last year, you uh, wrote an article stating that the Pakistan's army helped bring Imran Khan to victory in the 2018 elections by stifling other political parties and silencing the media and saying the army will expect Imran's government to be cheerleaders in support of the next military adventure. Now, whether that's true or not, the fact is, here is a situation that's very dangerous, India and Pakistan, and there are roles of governments and not really that kind of open discussion, or as far as I can tell, that you are talking about. How do we deal with this immediate kind of question, India versus Pakistan, especially with the tensions that came up just earlier this year with the exchange of military blows that the countries had? How do we deal with that immediate problem? But that's again, that's a, that's a, that's very important to focus on, not just these kind of long-term 
processes of you know, shifting the, the global narrative and perspective on nuclear weapons, but you know, actually currently existing circumstances in which things could go terribly, terribly wrong. And India and Pakistan is certainly a critical example. And, you know, the U.S. crisis with Iran is another critical example. And the U.S. conflict with China over the South China Sea is another place where, you know, something very bad could happen very quickly and run out of control. But with the case of India and Pakistan, I mean, one of the things that, you know, as, a, as you know, given your, you know, your experience and insight uh, on this, what we have is that there has been profound neglect of the nuclear danger posed by the competition between Pakistan and India, especially since 1998, when they both tested their nuclear weapons. It's worth recalling that at that time, you know, India tested in May of 1998, and then Pakistan tested soon afterwards. The U.S. imposed sanctions because U.S. law required imposing sanctions, and the United Nations Security Council passed a unanimous resolution saying India and Pakistan have to stop their nuclear weapons programs, not test missiles, et cetera, et cetera, and exercise responsibility and restraint. But what happened then was that 9-11 happened. And as the U.S. gave primacy to its war against al-Qaeda and the Taliban in Afghanistan, then it was more important to have Pakistan's support in that particular immediate conflict than to deal with the hard diplomatic political work of resolving the India-Pakistan tension, etc., especially since the U.S. needed the support of the Pakistani military intelligence services, ISI and others, to deal with the, the crisis in, in Afghanistan and the war in Afghanistan. And so they said, you know, we're not going to talk about nuclear weapons or any of these other things. And so the U.S. said, OK, well, we'll just let's just focus on the matter at hand, which is that. And so for a very long time, Afghanistan, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, the war against Islamic fundamentalist violence and terrorism became the center of U.S. politics towards Pakistan. And that involved a huge amount of military and economic and political support going to Pakistan. But that meant leaving the nuclear weapons problem off to one side. With India, the logic was a different one, but it had the same consequence that the U.S. sought to recruit India into way of thinking about how to deal with the rise of China in the world system. And so the United States made a series of agreements of cooperation, including a nuclear deal with India, which meant that the U.S. stopped talking very much about India's nuclear weapons program. And so there was really no effort led by the United States and certainly not by anybody else in the international system to maintain an active, determined push with these two countries to resolve this thing. So what we've seen in 20 years is that Pakistan has developed a nuclear arsenal that independently is estimated to be of the order of 150 nuclear weapons, as has India. They have nuclear weapons on aeroplanes, on ballistic missiles, on cruise missiles. India has got a nuclear-powered submarine that it's going to put nuclear weapons on. Pakistan is talking about putting nuclear weapons at sea. And so this 20 years of neglect because of other interests, geopolitical, military interests has led to an entrenchment of these nuclear weapons in both countries. And it's going to be much harder to roll these programs back now than it could have been 20 years ago. But I think that we just now have to pick up the pieces and go back and say, look, you know, we dropped that ball now, but the danger is real. And perhaps no more so than as we've started to realize where the use of 
the models that we use to understand climate change are now being used to understand the effects of even limited nuclear wars using small numbers of weapons, like it would happen possibly in the case of a war between Pakistan and India. And these computer models show that even the use of 50 nuclear weapons each by India and Pakistan, which is now one third of their respective arsenals, could lead to potentially catastrophic fires as cities burn under assault from nuclear weapons that would cloud the sky across most of the world and produce a catastrophic failure of agriculture and ecosystems that would last for more than 20 years and have incredibly destructive humanitarian consequences, not just for the people of those two countries, but for large parts of the world. And so as we begin to see these inadvertent and unexpected dangers from these regional nuclear crises, the urgency of intervention becomes greater. But the problem of intervention has become harder because of these decades of neglect for other geopolitical and geostrategic reasons. So you're right to stress the need to focus on this, but unfortunately we're not seeing that focus yet. Well, you know, that leads to uh, one other question, not so much as you have alluded to, that's not so much the question of the nuclear postures of countries, but the nuclear threat of materials in general. As you know, there's a new miniseries on HBO called Chernobyl, which dramatizes the horrific meltdown that took place in Soviet Ukraine in 1986. And for many people of younger generations for whom the Cold War seems like ancient history and the terror of nuclear weapons seems tangential in a way, uh, maybe this popular culture can serve a valuable role in awakening people to the kinds of dangers you mentioned just a minute ago, not only the death that would take place in an Indian-Pakistani nuclear exchange, but the ecological impact that could come, the unexpected consequences uh, that could come as a result. So even though nuclear war feels for some abstract or intangible, is that kind of notion, learning about Chernobyl or discussing the impact of an Indian-Pakistani exchange and the long-term power, is this something in information that is important for us to deal with? I think so. I think that one of the things that people don't appreciate about the history of the nuclear age is that from the very beginning, um, even before the first nuclear weapon was ever completed, um, by the United States during the Manhattan Project in World War II, some people began to realize the incredible danger and that these weapons posed to society, civilization, and nature. There's a famous memo that um, what was then the Secretary of War, what we would now call the Secretary of Defense, uh, Henry Stimson uh, provided to President Truman in 1945, uh, before the first bomb was finished and tested, in which Henry Stimson told President Truman that this new atomic bomb that we've been trying to build, he says that it will threaten all of civilization. The world will be at the mercy of this weapon. This is before the first test. And when they did the first test, the Trinity test in New Mexico um, in July of 1945, the physicists who were there who had built the bomb and watched it, one of them wrote very famously that for the first time, human beings had the power of God to be able to end the world because of the scale of destruction that they had just seen in this test. And slowly over time, we've started to realize and understand more and more the consequences, the humanitarian consequences, the environmental consequences, the ecological consequences of the fallibility of our understanding and our, our institutions and of our leaders in the face of the inevitability of what happens when a nuclear weapon goes off. 
And so having people being reminded of the kinds of catastrophes that follow when nuclear energy of all kinds is released into the world does help foreground this awareness in people. And it's especially compelling now because we have a generation of especially younger people for whom they've grown up starting to think about climate change. And for them, people and nature are uh, not something that can be separated in the way that previous generations of people treated the relationship between uh, people and the environment. Climate change has taught us just how inseparable human beings and nature are from each other. And so when we kind of bring in knowledge about nuclear weapons and nuclear energy into that setting, I think it has a new salience and a new significance. So I'm actually quite hopeful that a younger generation of people beginning to grapple with this, what they had assumed was a legacy issue of nuclear weapons that were something from the Cold War, as they realize that danger hasn't gone away and still needs to be addressed with great urgency, that they will bring this new environmental sensibility and a new humanitarian sensibility that has grown over the last 20 or 30 years that sees new rights for people, new entitlements for people to well-being and to have a say um, in the world, that these forces will actually combine and rebuild a kind of new consciousness about the need to address nuclear weapons and having popular culture help inform and bring salience to these kinds of dangers uh, is, is a good thing. You know, it, it leads us to my final question here, which is that it brings us back to the role of scientists, really. You've spoken about the responsibility of scientists, especially those subject matter experts in these very complex area who are leaders on these kinds of issues. We're living in an era where science is being increasingly challenged by special interests and political rhetoric. Some call this the war on expertise. Do you feel that the scientific community is being pressed in any way? And how can it respond to get at this admirable goal that you so eloquently discussed in your answer to the last question about raising the consciousness precisely of people who are of a generation that understands new relations with the environment, understands new relations in politics. How can the scientific community stand up to what may be a challenge? That's, again, that's a terrific question. And I think this is one that the scientific community needs to struggle with more actively. For a very long time, there was a small but enduring tradition among the physicists community in particular, where because of the role that they had in making nuclear weapons, that led them to play a, a role in trying to oppose nuclear weapons, to educate people and policymakers, Congress and presidents, and not just in the United States. You know, The same was true of famous Soviet physicists like Andrei Sakharov in the Soviet Union, who was then sent to the gulags for many years for his a willingness to speak up and challenge the Soviet leadership and say, look, you know, we shouldn't be doing all these nuclear weapon tests and we should find a way to end the danger of nuclear weapons. I think that the scientific community has, in one sense, lost sight of that role that it could play. But now that there is a sense in which, in some countries at least, science is and the role of science, and to some extent almost the role of reason and the idea of the enlightenment and that democratic processes work through a process of 
transparent, fact-based, reasoned discussion that leads to a convergence of understanding, a, a common sense about what is the problem and what is a practical solution, and that this is then what states begin to implement, that when that in itself comes into question and we are led into a situation where policymaking takes place by whim and by force and uh, by tweet, uh, rather than reason, discussion, debate, and fact, then, um, you know, scientists are starting to deal with this. And so, you know, there was a March for Science, which was the first contemporary mobilization of scientists as a social movement speaking to their larger society and to the government saying, look, we are not happy with this process that we see going on. And more scientists are now running for elected office. More scientists are joining organizations like the Union of Concerned Scientists. More scientists are starting to use their rights as citizens to lobby and speak to elected representatives. The Federation of American Scientists, a very venerable scientist organization based in D.C., actually now has an, an, a whole initiative devoted to organizing scientists to speak to Congress and to bring science back into the policy process actively with a collective voice on issues of climate change, nuclear weapons, biotechnologies, artificial intelligence, cybersecurity risks, all the problems that scientists have helped create, but also for which an understanding of science is necessary to find a solution that will work for people, economy, and society together. And so a new generation of scientists is embracing this, but we're still only at the beginning of this process. Well, that's also encouraging to have you end on this positive note. So, Zia, thank you again for taking the time to be with us today. Oh, thank you. Remember to look for us on our website, SoundCloud, and iTunes under the name of East West Institute, where you can listen, follow, and subscribe so you won't miss our conversations. Thank you all for listening.